Hello, and welcome to the Harder They Come episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hi. Hi, Emily. And we're also here with Vipal Monga of the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Vipal. Hi. Vipal, you have picked a 50-year-old, low-budget movie from Jamaica for us to watch this week. What is it, and why did you pick it? The movie's called The Harder They Come. It's the first feature film to come out of Jamaica, and I picked it because I think it has a lot to say about the music business today, even though it was made 50 years ago. We are going to talk about whether or not there are parallels to today's music industry. We're going to talk about the themes of the movie, the quality of the movie, the vibe of the movie. It's all coming up on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. To rewind a little bit, we're watching this this movie that was made in, what, 1972, somewhere around there, in Jamaica. And Jimmy Cliff plays a guy who's impecunious let's say and a little bit violent but he um eventually manages to make a record and eventually the record becomes popular and the way it becomes popular is he does the 1972 jamaican thing of like blowing up on tiktok which is apparently killing a bunch of policemen becoming an outlaw outlaw hero just like django i mean there's a clip from django in the movie and that's what gets him up the charts i mean it's his when he comes from the village to the city to Kingston, he wants to be famous. He wants to be rich. And the only way he can get notoriety is by going outside the law. Because I mean, if you watch the, the arc of the movie, being inside the system uh, crushes him. He can't make it inside. Yeah, there's really no, I mean, it seems like the Jamaican economy, just there's no real work to be done. He kind of, he tries his best to find work. He's really hungry. I like the scene where he tries to steal, I think it's a mango or a banana or something, and like some woman's got a knife like right on his wrist as he's trying to take the piece of fruit. Um, then he tries to, he he works for like a, a preacher for a while. Preacher is the guy's name. Like they're, they're really, really inventive like when it comes to naming. <laughs> he likes the guy's daughter. So that's like a whole, a whole tension. That doesn't work out. Um yeah, it is a very rough-looking film filmed in Kingston in the 1970s. There's this a knife 
Is it okay if we spoil? I feel like it's okay. We can it's a we can one hundred percent. This movie. is this is a show that is all spoilers. <laughs> it's all there spoil. No, I don't know why. I asked yeah, that. <laughs> it's all spoil all the time in this show. All spoil. There's this one scene where you know he the preacher kicks him out because he recorded his he was practicing his reggae music in the church, which is like a no no or whatever for the usual kinds of reasons, and he goes back to the preacher's yard, which is like kind of a mess and there's lots going on there. A lot of work is going on. He's made a bicycle in the yard and he goes to get his bicycle, which is very valuable to him. And there's like a knife fight. And our hero, Ivan, that's when we first get a sense of like, this kid is violent. Like he he just starts slashing the face of the guy he's having the the fight with. And the with blood, very the realistic blood. Yeah. <laughs> Neon <laughs> it was like tomato blood. juice or something. Um, I still couldn't, I still had to look away. That's how like weak-willed I am. I was like, oh no. Even though it was obviously comically fake blood. This is not a high budget movie. We, we can definitely say that. It's also the movie that is widely credited for popularizing reggae across the world. Um, so that's important too. Yeah, I didn't realize Bob Marley came sort of second and Jimmy Cliff was first, basically, thanks to this movie. Yeah, I mean, by then reggae had had some root, uh, foothold in uh, London. Uh, Desmond Decker, the great Desmond Decker, already had already had a number one hit uh, in the UK with uh, Israelites by then. Um, so the ground was there, but really it was that movie and then Bob Marley that made uh, reggae into a worldwide phenomenon. And some of the things about the music industry that the the film brings up have changed. Like the the big the big bad in the music industry in the film is oh, it's, he's this record industry guy, and everyone kind of waits outside the gate, and he drives in with a big Mercedes, and they ask if they can record a song in his studio. Um, and then when Ivan Jimmy Cliff records a song that's obviously good, he'll only offer twenty dollars for the song. And the only way the song becomes can become a hit on the radio is, is if this guy allows it to be played on the radio, right? There's the, yeah. All, the all of payola. all of the power is is in the hands of the record label, which was definitely the case in the 1970s, and seems to definitely not be the case anymore. Uh, why would you say it's not the case now? I I actually think it's kind of still the case. You um, think it's still the case? Right. So who has a power in the streaming world? Uh, it's not Spotify. I mean, they think they have the power. I mean, um, but if you look at their margins, the economic power is still with the rights holders and the labels because they get the bulk of the money. Uh, I was looking at Spotify's earnings. Uh, their revenue numbers in euros were something like uh, $2.3 billion for the quarter, but they only had... Uh, their margin was like 26%. So much of that money went to the royalty holders, which increasingly are the label holders. I mean, as we know, Universal just bought Bob Dylan's entire catalog. So they own that. They get the bulk of the money. Um, so I don't think that's changed very much. Well, I mean, I think I think, I think think that's what I'm going to push back is that, um, like, number one, like, obviously Bob Dylan owned his publishing rights until he sold them he could sell them to anyone he didn't need to sell it to universal most of these big publishing deals are actually going to like hedge funds private investors there's like a pe backed shop which is buying up all of these things all over the place it's it's a very like owning publishing rights and like you know cashing those 
checks which everyone expects to continue to flow into perpetuity is a very different business from being a record label. The thing that the record labels always used to have was the ability to like make an artist, to break an artist. They had these A&R people who could, you know, be like, we're going to make you a star. And the way that stars emerge now from social media or from SoundCloud or from wherever it is that stars emerge from, like you often find acts which have, you know, been at the top of the charts for some time before they get their first record deal, which is, you know, they have the power. They get, you know, like Migos or someone comes out and they get to choose which record label they want to represent them. They have all of the negotiating leverage. And I think that's new. And that's the opposite of what we saw in this movie. I think for a certain subset of the musicians, that is true. But I, I don't think things are that different. You know, to prepare for this, I went back and looked at what things were like in the 50s, back in the time of the payola scandals, Alan Freed and Dick Clark and all those folks. Yeah, what does payola mean? I, I like threw the word out earlier, but and then I realized, oh, I can't explain it. I have no so idea. So payola it like, is, is, is one of my most fascinating things. And it was a big scandal. And, you know, and I still kind of go back and forth on like, you know, how, how shocking was it? But like, it's literally pay to play it is literally the record labels will pay the radio station to play their singles rather than the other guy's singles um which is you know again like something which you know you don't have any record labels paying tiktok to use you know to to blow up their songs and make them go viral you don't and in the 50s it was people like Alan Freed, you know, the guy popularized, the, the Cleveland DJ who popularized the term rock and roll. He often owned publishing rights of the company, of the bands that he would promote on his station. Dick Clark did that too. Uh, you know, American Bandstand. He owned publishing rights and uh, would often be the conduit that allowed these artists to get to the label. So they became the key cog in that whole machine, and they would tilt things in the direction that favored them economically. I mean, the, the whole royalty structure nowadays is so opaque, it's really impossible to tell who's getting the money when uh, the streamers you know, send their money to um, da down the line. But I would not be surprised, because maybe because I'm cynical, that the bulk of the uh, money or the, the, the bulk of the streams that are recommended to you are influenced by people who will own the rights to the song. So, although the one thing that you have to we ought to mention here is that, I mean, again, it's very opaque. No one really understands it. There's a lot of secrecy around around it. But one broad, one like stylized fact, let's say about about the the money that flows from Spotify and other streamers to artists is that if I call up Spotify on my phone and I'm like, Pay, play Good For You by Olivia Rodrigo, and I, I specify a particular song, and that song comes on, and, I, and she will get a certain amount of royalty for that stream that I listen to, versus if I'm just play a radio station of stuff that I like, and a bunch of songs come on, and Good For You is one of those songs, the amount of money she will get for that like algorithmically chosen stream is significantly lower. Hmm. 
Well, anyway, I think we can all agree that things have improved for artists since 1972 in Kingston, Jamaica, for our protagonist, Ivan, who has to settle for $20 from this awful record producer who then says to his his worker person, like, don't send this to the radio station. Let's just bury it. It's good, but this guy's a troublemaker. He's a troublemaker. I don't, they have not improved for the artists. I, I would, I disagree with that. I think if it was 2022, Ivan could be like, you know what? And he could put out some TikTok or something and it could be like the next Lil Nas X with his snazzy vests. Well, he kind of did that. His TikTok was shooting, getting on the radio as a criminal. But in 2022, more brands would have pursued him for influencer deals. And he would have had <laughs> Maybe. alternative revenue right. streams instead of having to get involved in the marijuana trade, which we haven't even gotten into his his involvement in the marijuana trade. Like who like who has the power these days to say, oh like, yeah, don't promote this person. He's a troublemaker. Like even the record labels don't have that power anymore. Well I think that in theory, superficially it seems like individual artists has more power to to uh, influence the trajectory of their career if they get viral. Uh, but who controls the algorithm that allows someone to get viral? Well, it's not the record label. Us, us right. bite dance, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. There's, It's definitely at the top, the corporate structure is much more bifurcated than it was back when there were like three record labels that ran the entire music business. That's true. But I don't think the power's in the hand. Right, but I still disagree that the power's in the hand of the musician, the individual creative artist I, I would say that the power is in the hand of the public the 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 public is really choosing who they want to listen to and whoever the public wants to listen to is who winds up doing the best it's actually much more democratic now than it's ever been right um and that in a way you could argue that that's what happened to ivan i mean it was when the public was clamoring for his music that it rose up the charts uh, and it took a concerted effort, but, you know, at some point the police ban his music from the radio because, you know, he's a criminal and they want to stop him. Um, so it, take, it takes that to shut him down. But until then, he was, you know, number one with a bullet, literally. Uh, but I honestly don't think things have changed. You know, I've, uh, I know a bunch of musicians and, you know, before this, I talked to them a little bit about it. And um, some of them quite successful and uh, streaming isn't really a lot of money for them. Um, it isn't coming through the streaming venues that they still have to play live. You still have to constantly go out there and, uh, you know, work, uh, the, the venues to make for some a, a living wage. Um, and for others, it's not enough at all. I mean, even making the, the, the stallion selling hottie sauce, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna come out and make the claim that, um, musician incomes from streaming have gone up relative to like the cd era um and we actually spoke about this on on slate money that the cd year the cd era um really kind of focused the cash flows on the people who were like selling music today rather than um on the people that people rather than on the artists that people are listening to if you listen to some cd that um you'd own for 25 years, no one got paid for that listen. Whereas now, if you listen to a piece of music from 25 years ago, it's that, you know. So so the streamers don't, uh, are much more backwards focused in terms of time than the CD market was. 
and so yeah, I I'm not saying for a minute that like life is easy for contemporary artists, contemporary recording artists. I'm not saying that they're making a lot of money from Spotify. Definitely not saying that. What I am saying is that the gatekeepers are kind of not even there anymore. It's hard to identify who they might be. And it's not the record labels. The record labels might be doing quite well financially because they have all of those back catalogs and they have all of those, IP, you know, all of that IP and whoever owns the IP gets the money. But I, I don't see them as really having nearly as much influence over the charts not only as they did in the 70s, but even as much as they did in, in like the 2000s. I think it's changed a lot. I don't think they care about the charts anymore, really. Right, because because they because they have their back catalogs. They don't need to right. care. Right, exactly. Which, again, if you're an up-and-coming musician, makes it even more difficult than it used to be to get that foothold in order to make a living doing the thing that you love, which is making music as opposed to maybe selling hot sauce. So I agree with you. It's harder to identify the gatekeepers which is fine if you're the money man, because you're still going to make the money, even if you if you don't control, you know what uh, people are listening to. But it's not so great if you're trying to make it in the business because you don't really know how to do it, or it's, it's a lot more difficult than it might have been before. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. Two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I also think the other thing that was interesting about this movie was he goes, and you mentioned this, Emily, just now, is the um, he tries to make it as a musician, can't, and then goes into the drug business and finds a similar dynamic there, which is, you know, that before uh, poor Ivan gets his cut, all of the money's been taken away and he's only getting a pittance of the hundreds of thousands of dollars in this case from the drug trade, and he just can't handle it. He's really incensed by it. He realizes how unfair it is and tries to, at one point, uh, say to his friend Jose that uh, they should just go into business on their own. Um, and that's when the system really comes down on him and, and crushes him. Right. Could, maybe you guys can explain this to me. So like, so the the guy running the marijuana trade that Ivan is working for basically has a deal worked out with the police and so he's able to conduct his business under with their tacit approval. Um, and then when Ivan tries to like do it differently, the police turns on him, and that's kind of where all the trouble starts. But then, <laughs> because Ivan becomes this outlaw, then the police shut down marijuana, the marijuana business completely on in Kingston, and like everyone is hungry basically without that trade like it's a I know they're like you have to let economy. us trade our marijuana because 
that's how we get our money to feed ourselves. And the police is like, I don't care if you starve. I'm not going to let you sell your marijuana until we capture Ivan. Yeah, yeah. It was really sad. It was it was sad. Well, the, the one thing that was abundantly clear is that for all of his outlaw status and the fact that he was being financially shafted not only by the music industry, but also by the marijuana industry, motherfucker had an amazing clothes budget. <laughs> yeah, what is going on with the clothes? He had so many good outfits. Yeah, yeah. His collars <laughs> were too. like, just, you know, it's like, wow. <laughs> right. Well, he's Jimmy Cliff. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty, pretty great. The Kangol hats and everything all came from that. I mean, that movie is so influential. There's also that great line, which is, I think, the theme of the film, where, you know, right when Ivan, country bumpkin, shows up in Kingston and he meets that guy who steals all his stuff. And the guy says to him, the line is, I wrote it down here, is, uh, if you have money, you can go anywhere. But if you don't have money, you're fucked. And that's like the theme of the movie. That was like right at the beginning of the movie. And then the song that plays over and over again, which is uh, uh, You Can Make It If You Really Want, which starts off as a great like sort of like aspirational song. By the end of the movie, it's like a horribly tragic and ironic lyric. Um, so I thought that was really interesting to see. I mean, obviously planned by the director. Um, but yeah, it was like sad. Sad ending. Because Ivan really wanted to make it, no doubt. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And he was and so he talented. He, he, he made it, but he had to pay for it with his life. I guess. And, and by killing a few policemen along the way. <laughs> hey, kill, kill a few cops. And that poor woman. He shot that woman. Yeah. Wait, he slept yeah. with her and then glug? he shot her? He shot yeah, her. Yeah, it was awful. Well, he, I really yeah. hated all of that. All the women stuff, like, yeah. and all the boobs. Like, what? I, I don't, it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. I think it kind of reminded me of um, Do the Right Thing. There's like that beginning uh, scene with Rosie Perez. Some of the the shots with women kind of reminded me of that. And I don't know if that was intentional on Spike Lee's part. Yeah, I don't know if they would reference, if he referenced that film in particular, but it definitely permeated a lot of cinema afterwards. I mean, the black exploitation stuff has similar themes. But, you know, it's it's sort of that thing where um, Why he is the I outlaw. Just, he... Yeah, yeah, the he is a uh, outlaw hero, but he's he's completely isolated, and because of that, you know, there's that at the end when he is facing the cops in the final showdown, he comes out with his two gun pistols, and he makes says that line like, uh, uh, basically, challenges the cops to a man to man showdown, which just shows how naive and like ridiculous he was. Uh, he thought that the cops would come out and fight him like man to man, one to one, whereas they've got this whole like army and this array of like weaponry and they use it to just mow him down. And I thought that was like really telling that this he still believed that he could do it on his own. He could make it by himself, isolated, alone, weak. Um, meanwhile, this entire corporate apparatus and the music thing it, and um, uh, in the cannabis business just take him down. I mean, you can't fight against that. I thought that was really like a sad commentary on on Ivan and what he believed the hero. That is like a super seventies jam, right? I mean, I feel like the seventies is all about. It winds up that the rebel, whoever Bonnie and Clyde, whatever, in the end, they the man comes for them. And if the move this movie was remade and came out now, like it would not. Movies don't end like that anymore. 
you know? Yeah, but I mean, that I think that's more realistic in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, not def- gonna, 100%. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> it is but yeah, this was like, yeah, I mean, it, but it was very seven, it was very kind of easy rider, you know, that Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid. Same exactly. sort of well, everyone died at the end of movies yeah. in the 70s. What was going on? <laughs> right. Um, the, the big difference between uh, this movie and the black exploitation movies, which is worth just bringing up, I don't know if you have anything to say about it, is that this was a white director. Mm, right, right. I mean, he's in Jamaica, so very much steeped in the culture. But yeah, he was a white director. But I think, you know, very sympathetic and understanding sort of understood the culture that he was trying to to talk about it the character of ivan is based on a real life jamaican outlaw ryland he was called and in the 40s was you know really famous for shooting a bunch of cops and sort of not going into hiding but no one could catch him for a long time so that became the model for it so i think perry Hensel, the, the director was really um trying to bring that out i i listened to a really interesting interview with Jimmy Cliff. And Jimmy Cliff argued that Ivan shouldn't die at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, And he's like, why does he have to die? He shouldn't die. He should escape to Cuba, you know, socialist paradise. Um, But Perry Hensel kept saying crime doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay. But really, in the rest of the movie, crime does pay if you're the man. Then crime totally pays. Just depends on which side of it you're on. Um, so I thought, thought that was deeply ironic. So wait, you're, you're saying that the, the director was the director was coming in like the Chinese censors and making sure that like the baddies always get their come up and <laughs> right, right. He was, he was, it was very much. And you're referring to the Fight Club. Uh, yeah, thing. break that down, Felix, because that is super interesting. If you can. So yeah, Vipo, like I mean, this is this is a known fact that if you want to release. If you want your movie to be released in China, you need to recut it to the satisfaction of the Chinese census. And the one thing that the Chinese census will always insist on is that the baddies will get caught and put away or die, and the goodies always like are victorious at the end. Which wait, what was the upshot of this in terms of like the ending of Fight Club? So at the end of Fight Club, um, Ed Norton's character holds hands with um, Helena Bonham Carter's character, and they look out the window of this like high rise and watch all these like banks explode. Right, the the legendary final scene of Fight Club with the entire city just like exploding. Yeah. Right, but that's not what happens in the Chinese version. <laughs> they cut to an intertitle, and they basically say that at the last minute the cops came in. And arrested everyone and stopped this horrible plot and everyone was like j- put in jail. The banks uh, I would love to see the fan cut of that, like someone making an actual ending that resemble that. That's a really good ending, by the way, t- in terms of like outlaws not, have, not having to die. And I applaud the 90s for that. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. In terms of this movie, it came out, it was not a... Uh, 
box office hit so much as a cult classic. People m- watched it in like midnight showings for years to come. I'm sure they were, you know, smoking a lot while they were. It it became this kind of cool underground way to show that you were, you know, tribal allegiance, I guess, would be to sort of, you know, to go see this movie, which underground movies, like, they, they always have the ability to be, like, not very good on the sort of technical level. You, you can be, like, low budget, you can be a bit campy, and people are okay with that. Was that always the best that this could have hoped for? Because it really was like ultra low budget. I mean, the acting is terrible. The the the, the screenwriting is terrible. The, the line delivery is terrible. There's not a lot of <laughs> there's not a lot of like great craft in this movie. No, I mean, and he used a lot of people locals from uh, Kingston to fill out the cast. So you see that. I thought Jimmy Cliff was great. He he's got a real charisma about him. I think that comes through really well and. The drug dealer who played Jose was great. Uh, I wish I had swagger like that guy. That guy was pretty impressive. But even the uh, record producer, Mr. Hilton, uh, was just, uh, you know, civilian. Wasn't an actor. And I thought he had great presence and seemed like a professional actor. But, yeah, for the most part, they were not actors. Um, he used three different cinematographers. So the shooting style varies, and you can tell which different cinematographer there is just based on the shot selection. It's really weirdly, well, roughly edited. Uh, but I still think above and beyond all the technical deficiencies, there's an amazing like life to the movie that comes across. It still reads for me. I mean, maybe I'm biased. I've, I've kind of always loved the movie and my doorway into the movie was through the music, which is fantastic. But I think it just, that there's a real like, it's alive. Yeah, the, the the thing to like about the movie is the music, which is still fresh and great, and the color. I feel like there's, you know, the reds and the yellows and the just the sort of yeah, that the the life of the color palette is fantastic. And I think the plot was pretty good. I there's no there's not like a lot of wasted time in that film. And weirdly, I was watching it again this week. <laughs> Emily's like, there was wasted time in that film. Uh, like, see, I the, remember the, some the cuts that I was like, what just happened? Quite a long time. Yeah, certain things take forever. And then other things, I'm like, did they have a child? What is happening? <laughs> like a shooting right. occurs, but the, the camera's so jostled. It's un- it's totally unclear until someone literally says, you shot three police. You shot three cops. And I was like, oh, that's what happened. Like. <laughs> I had a little bit of, but it, I think it was a really interesting to just see Kingston in the 1970s. Like that was just super interesting. Um, it was like beautiful and just everything about it was cool to look at. See, I also way. like the fact that it was in parts like really quiet as a film. I like those moments of like where it seems like nothing's happening or it's just like really silent. I thought that just added a lot to it, but I, I tend to prefer that. And, and I think for a movie that's so driven by the music, the fact that there are moments like that just adds a lot and uh, helps the music really pop, which is, again, like if you, any of our listeners haven't picked up the soundtrack, they should. It's like hit after hit. It's like an amazing uh, document of like early reggae. What does this movie tell us about money? Since it is slate money goes to the movies. The man always wins. The man <laughs> always wins. The man always wins. The yeah. man always gets the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I think the, the the main point of this theme of the film. Yeah. 
Oh, and the women always lose. Jesus. I think Elsa says towards the end, she's like, every game I play, I lose. And I was like, it's true, Elsa. All the women are losing in this movie. The poor mother at the beginning, she, she didn't even get a mango from country. That was yeah. awful. That was his mom, yeah. And the, the reason <laughs> she the, had the, the grandmother starts off dead. Like, yes! I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that other woman gets shot for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, he just shoots her. Like he just shoots this woman for like literally no reason, right? I mean, like no, I mean, Vival, you so. know this movie. I I have to admit there were points where I was getting a little bit confused. Was there a reason for him to shoot her? Well, because she was sleeping with Jose. Right, because she, she was Jose's girlfriend, right? Or her, yeah, yeah. Were, but she yeah. slept with him just a few scenes prior to that, so he felt a little betrayed. And then she said to him, uh, he said. I think the line is, uh, have you seen Jose? I have something for him. And she said, give it to me. And he goes, you want it, eh? Okay, I'll give it to you. And then he shoots her. But if we're looking for a theme, a slight money theme, I think it's in the movie. It's that line I just quoted. Like, if you've got, you have money, you can go anywhere. And if you don't have money, you're fucked. I think that's the, Hold I think up. that's a theme. Yeah. I mean, Hold you can up. go anywhere if you have, like, someone who can start the car for you. <laughs> like you, because my my favorite scene in the whole movie is, is is where like he manages to escape from the police and then there's this empty like jeep that the police came in and so instead of like jumping in the jeep and driving away <laughs> he shoots the wheels of the jeep and then tries to ride away on his bicycle right right <laughs> because right. because he can drive a car but he can't start a car he hasn't quite right. worked out the whole like turn the key thing well, he's still a country bumpkin. I mean, it's still, that's the story of Ivan. I mean, he's in a way like really sympathetic, even though by the end of it, he's a horrible murderer. And, um, but, you know, he's still like, still that little country kid who doesn't get the ways of, you know, the big city. And that's, you know, what does him in, in the end. If he just played along a little bit, he could have risen up the ranks, made more money. That's another, you know, story you see, like become... The Scarface character, but even Scarface got dies in the hills of bullets. Yeah. yeah. He, he, could, he could have become Jimmy Cliff. He could have become like a right. global reggae right. star. <laughs> if, if he'd been okay getting 20 bucks or something that he thought was worth $200, which was a kind of a great scene when he stands up for himself and tells Mr. Hilton, he goes, I don't think that's right, $20. And then when Hilton says, How much do you think this song is worth? He says 200 and all, even the musicians behind him start laughing at like how naive this guy is. That was very relatable to me as someone who's reported on salary negotiation, because <laughs> honestly, that's still a tactic used by recruiters. Like they will be like, oh, that's a crazy number. Like no one's ever set a number that high. And you're like, oh, really? Oh. But the the the, the music movie, the music producer guy was great. He was like, okay. You don't want the 20 bucks. Here's an actual printed vinyl copy of your record. You go ahead and you own this and you own all the IP and go ahead and make it on your own if you want. Of course, it turns out that he can't. But like, that, was, that wasn't very generous, if you ask me. He didn't need to pay for the studio, studio time. I guess so, but he closed off all the venues for the guy <laughs> to get the music out. You know, what was that line? He said that uh, it's show business, baby. If you don't have the business, there's no show. He said that line too, which I thought was great. But yeah, it's a payola. He can't pay anyone, so they're not going to play his music. So he can't make money to pay them. It's trapped. There was no 
live reggae in this mo- in this movie um there's live music in the church that people perform um but like there's no reggae concerts like the only reggae performing that we see is in the studio and it really gives the impression and i have no idea if this is true or not that reggae was a recorded music phenomenon rather than being something that grew out of like performance that's really interesting felix i hadn't thought of it that way but i think you're right i mean so much of reggae was you know the sound systems that the djs would carry around with them like king tubby or whatnot and play at parties and you play records you would play the discs uh, i don't think it was alive music as much as recorded um and then you know it evolved eventually into like dub music which is all like engineering and reverb and heavy studio effects to make the music um there is a movie that was made in the late 70s which is like a great bookend to this one called rockers have you guys heard of this great reggae classic which has uh which has some live performances in it uh, which i would recommend you seeing if you're into reggae music or want more uh, similar <laughs> emily is like nope <laughs> aside from the misogyny uh why didn't you like this movie emily like what else did you not like about it i i don't i don't feel comfortable saying i didn't like it i just feel like don't pull punches, Emily. I didn't pull we, punches. I didn't like it. I'm sorry. I like uh, my, maybe I'm is, a simple commercial woman <laughs> who likes her Marvel films. I'm looking forward like to the big Marvel short. Films, true. I just I I need more. I I don't mind Hollywood's narratives and and I don't mind a little help in the exposition sometimes or don't shake up the camera during the shoot the shooting scene because I don't know who's gotten shot. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about the shot where he, where he first shoots the, the yes. The, uh, what is happening? Everything's turning around. Right. It looks like right. there was like an altercation with the well, camera he, person. What he does is he flips a point of view to the policeman, and the policeman's on the motorbike, which is why it's shaky. And then that's because that's why you see Ivan, and Ivan pulls okay. a gun, and then you, that's the point of view of the policeman as he falls off the bike because he's been shot. So that's oh. why it gets all shaky. I, don't do that. I've never, I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't care for that. Um, so, Emily, you're, you're, you're giving this a, a low grade, this movie, overall? Yeah, I'll give it... I'll give it a six because the music was good. How's that? That's, that's, was that's no ma- generous of you. Well, what was the Made in Manhattan scale from last season? What did you give Made in Manhattan? Wait, what did, what did you give Made in Manhattan? Is this better or worse than Made in Manhattan? I guess it's better because it's, like, more interesting. You know, there's, like, more to discuss. There's more um, subject matter there. There's more texture to get into. So I'll say it's better than Made in Manhattan. In, but I know Taffy would, like, if she were listening, she would write in immediately and argue with me about it. But <laughs> it is better than Made in Manhattan. It's way more interesting and the themes are interesting and the music is good, fine. And it's in a unique location and it's stood the test of time. So fine. Six. I will I will say, you know, it's a good movie to see if you want to sit in the back of a movie theater and smoke a 
blunt and like make out with someone and not really pay any attention to the plot because the plot doesn't matter <laughs> and it's just good mu- like good music and good colors it's and it's it's a vibe man and i'm okay with movies just being a vibe man i, I think that's like it it works on that level if you ask me to grade it as like a work of art maybe not so much <laughs> right uh yeah. people you get to you get to Finish us off here. What's the? How would you rate rank this movie? Um, well, if we're gonna use a scale, I think I'd give it an eight. I think I agree with you. It is a vibe. I think the themes are strong and timeless, and in, in a lot of ways, um, I love the music and the the technical parts of it. I actually find kind of appealing. It's kind of like I don't want to be condescending, but it, you you, you want to know cute, where they found you know? that fake blood, don't you? I do. I, that was they're pretty impressive. The neon blood everywhere. But there's, I mean, there's some powerful scenes, like that scene where he gets caned in the... Uh, oh, yeah. We didn't talk about yeah, that. That was, was brutal. awful. Yeah. He completely, like, slices up this guy's face, scars him for life, and almost, like, leaves him for dead. And then the judge is like, yeah, but you're a good lad. I won't throw you in prison. I'll just, like, cane you. It's like, Ten. if you don't go to prison for that, what do you go to prison for? <laughs> right. So, yeah, I would give it an eight. I, I do think, like I said, the, the technical uh, limitations, which I agree with, there's a lot of them, uh, don't bother me. And they just they add to the life of the film. Like, if it, I think it would have lost a lot of its power if it had been too, too smooth. <laughs> I'm just like, hey. <laughs> we, we are, we are going to be talking about Jackie Brown later in this season so maybe jackie brown is the smooth high budget version yeah that's excellent we have themes going look at that felix (laughs) all right so i hope you guys stick around for jackie brown we have ben horowitz talking about jackie brown that's going to be a vibe so (laughs) stick around for that but for the meantime vpal thank you so much for coming on the show it's been awesome having you great i've had a great time thanks so much And yeah, and we'll be back on Saturday with a regular slate money. 